Oh, you're and recording. You s- I, I admit to being drunk. You're recording. <laughs> <laughs> I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. <laughs> Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It is great to have you. And today, I'm being joined by, once again, I guess every month, Jesse from I Dream of Jesse. How are you, my dear? I'm doing awesome. As, as we can all tell by the cold open, <laughs> you are doing awesome. Uh, it is December 7th, and we have a fantastic show for you this week. So, we're going to start it off with I Dream of Jesse, episode 20. Which one is this? This is called Foodcraft. So it's about food? Um, no, it's about cars. And crafting <laughs> of cars? It's about um, filing <laughs> your taxes. It's about mowing your lawn. It's well, that's coming up quick. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> Uh, and then after this segment that has nothing to do with food, in Verl Informant, why, <laughs> why impact of Eric Garner case might be much bigger than Ferguson. And choosing, <laughs> we're taking serious here, we're choosing the best Christmas trees, dead or alive. And uh, then we're going to close it out with, I, I was actually going to be putting this out last week, but I literally forgot. I was... <laughs> I was, I was drinking what? and I wasn't thinking. And so we're putting it out this week. The Satanic Tradition, Episode 4, Paradise Lost. And it is really good. So look forward to that at the tail end. But before we get into it, um, drinking, huh? So you had company. I, like, can I ask you something? Yeah. <clears throat> when, <sighs> I might get some shit for this. When you go over to someone's house uh, or company comes to yours, and we'll we'll do the latter for this because you just had company. When you offer a drink, is it rude for them to refuse? No, not at all. Well, a drink? And in this case, it's the next door neighbors. Oh. So I mean, if they had said, you know, no thanks, we got dinner around the stove, you know, no big deal. Right. See, I'm coming off of a weekend um, where I had some friends over. Um, for, I, let, let me put it this way, uh, new friends over. And so I'm not used to individual behaviors, preferences, anything like blank slate, no, nothing. Uh, <laughs> and it was like, I was like, Hey, would you like a drink? And the gentleman says, yes. I asked the lady, would you like a drink? No, <laughs> just flat out. No. <laughs> Weirdest thing for me, weirdest thing ever. Like, I, even if it's, I offer alcoholic beverages, but I, I have water, I have milk, I have fucking tea, I have a selection of teas actually, I have coffee, I have juice, I literally have everything except for soda in my house that you could possibly drink. No, nothing. Don't want anything. I'm good. Well, that's (laughs) where you, that's where you grab a, a drink whatever alcoholic or non and sort of pace yourself to the guy and then don't offer a second unless the hint comes. Yeah. Yeah. 
I just thought it was weird. Like, no, nothing. Not not one wetting of a whistle the entire time they, they were over. I just thought, uh, yeah, yeah, interesting. A little weird. Interesting. I totally would have wanted a glass of water or something. I don't know. Totally Did weird. you offer, like, but, snacks? Well, we... Okay, well, here, here's what made it weird. They came over for dinner. They came over for dinner. Nothing. <laughs> they didn't drink at dinner? He did. She did not. <laughs> nothing! Nothing! And, I mean, that didn't even really eat, to be quite honest. Which is weird. Weird to me. Weird. Um, but it was actually really good company. Uh, both of them were lovely, lovely fucking people. I really dug them and I hope to hang with them again, but weird, <laughs> totally not normal, <laughs> not to come over to dinner and not eat slash drink. <laughs> yeah. I got to call that weird. With the, with the premise of fucking coming to dinner. Oh, okay. But you know what? People are different. <laughs> so fucking, so what? I, and here's the other thing, like on the other side of that coin, uh, is my behavior. So I, I, I think there's an expectation because I, I have a satanic podcast because I'm a reverend in the church of Satan, because I'm, uh, just in general, a Satanist that there, there is going to be something when you come to my house and you have dinner with me. Like I'm going to, I don't know, like, uh, pull out a goat's head and hold it above the dinner table, or I'm going <laughs> to, you know, offer sacrificial virgin blood. This is the first menstruation blood of the season. Like something, you know? And when they see that I am literally just another just random dude. You don't I, even lay out your bacon in the shape of an inverted pentacle. <laughs> I, I genuinely think they're disappointed. Like, I think people are like, oh, well, fuck this dude. <laughs> I, I wanted him to try to sacrifice me or at least invite me to perform said ritual or something, but he didn't do anything. And his house looks like a normal fucking house and he looks like a normal fucking dude. He wasn't even wearing a cloak. Where's the cape? Not even a high card cape. <laughs> I feel like, I don't know, maybe I should do that. But I, I genuinely, I had a moment this specific dinner where I saw myself from the other side and I was like, I'm disappointed in myself. I should have fucking done something different. <laughs> should have uh, should have been more I don't know eccentric or something. Uh, the conversation went, in my opinion, really well. Uh, there was some really great back and forth, which is rare uh, for especially the first time you meet people. And so uh, I don't know. It was it, it, it <laughs> oh yeah, and my daughter almost burned the house down. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I think you need to elaborate on that one. So, <laughs> uh, well, let me set this up really quick. When I and, and tell me if, if you do the same. I'm when I meet Drew someone more fire starter. Go ahead. <laughs> when when I meet someone for the first time, I try to uh, parse out bits and pieces of who I am, rather than just slapping it in their face. You know, rather than mushroom stamping them on the nose with "This is Adam," I try to just deal out one card at a time so they get a, a, a brief taste and hopefully it's tantalizing enough that they'll want to come back for seconds um in this case it was literally like uh they saw the enraged adam they saw the terrified adam they saw the mortified adam which there are subtle differences between those um and they saw the uh <laughs> overindulged adam so 
like they came over and before they came over, I, I have a, a batch of wine, a white Merlot that I'm, I'm making. It's currently fermenting. And so it smells of yeast in my house, which is actually pretty off-putting even for people who like wine, like me and my wife. So I were burning candles to try to mask this scent that they're going to be hit with just straight up like yeast in their face as soon as they walk in the house. Um, so, and normally like in the spring and summer and fall, we have the windows open. It's not a big deal, but it's a little bit chilly or at least it was last night. It's not today. And so we didn't have the windows open. Uh, so we were trying to mask it with fire. And I tell my daughter, don't touch the fire. You can burn yourself. You can burn other people or you could burn the house down. So don't touch the fire. And she says, okay, daddy. And I think that means that she won't touch the fucking fire. But what I don't take into account is that my wife is not paying attention to my daughter and um, uh, trying to, uh, you know, make the female guest comfortable. And I am trying to cook and make the male guest comfortable. And my daughter just totally ignores everything I say <laughs> all the fucking time. And so I'm guessing what she did was take a napkin, put it over the candle. It lights on fire. She panics thinks that by throwing it into the recycling, which is full of paper and plastic, that, <laughs> that will put it out. And when it doesn't, I'm walking in with uh, freshly charred ribs off the grill, and I see her rushing over to the sink and rushing back to the garbage and just, like, muttering fire under her breath, like, fire, fire. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I put the ribs down. She's like, fire. And I look around, and there's flames shooting out of my fucking... <laughs> Just shooting out of the bin that I have all of my recyclables in. And I was like, fuck! Because I'm like freaking out. I look over and I, I see the beer that I uh, gave to the the, uh, the, um, uh, the gentleman that was over for dinner. And I was like, I don't want to throw that in there because I offered him the beer and I don't want to waste it. And then I see my like quarter filled glass of water from earlier. I was like, fuck it, that's got to be enough. And I throw it down and I get some more. And we, we put the fire out. And then I, like, just emotions take over, and I turn on my daughter as if she both at the same time kicked me in the balls and stole $100 out of my pocket. Like, what is wrong with you? Why would you do that? Like, I just lost my shit and totally yelled at her, and I, I, I sent her, like, immediately after, like, freaking the fuck out, trying to get down to the bottom of it, put her in the corner, and she just sat there freaking the fuck out herself. And then I look over at my company, I'm like, holy shit, they just saw me literally lose my shit and scream at my tiny, tiny little baby daughter. And then once again, I saw myself through their eyes, and, I, and this is what happens to me every time I scream at my kids. I immediately feel bad, I'm like I could have handled this better or differently. But in my head, I'm like, she almost fucking burnt the house down. She deserves a verbal lashing. And some time in the corner is quite appropriate. I, you know, what the fuck? But again, going back to the beginning, I like to parse myself out in front of people. I don't like to lay it bare. So the only other thing I could have done to make this more of a transparent night for these people was literally to pull my dick out and say, this is all I got. This is it. You've literally at this point seen everything. <laughs> I didn't know what else to do. I was just like, fuck. Sorry, guys. Uh... It smells like burnt plastic and paper even after I threw the, the rubbish outside and it's just like a fucking crazy, crazy night. Oh! Oh, yeah! To make the fucking night worse. How can it be worse? <sighs> it can. So I'm in the backyard with uh, this dude 
and I'm uh, sort of putting barbecue sauce on the ribs, and we just hear this honk, 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 like this person laying on their horn in their car right around the front of my house. I'm like, are you guys blocking anyone like when you parked and pulled up and they're like no we're just right in front of your house and we don't normally have this type of behavior in our like in our neighborhood like people generally i would say people in the world understand that if they don't come out after the first couple honks you get your ass out your car and you go knock on the door this person was laying on the horn it was nearly 60 full seconds of a just barrage of horn play that I was like, fuck it, I gotta go confront this person. And so I walk out, and it's totally pitch black, it's this long white Cadillac, and I'm like, I'm either going to get shot, or I'm gonna get in a fight. And so I walk up, and I'm like looking in, it looks like there's this big body hunched over, I'm like, oh fuck, it's a neighbor who's dead, and they just happened to roll to a stop, and they're leaning on the horn, dead, and I'm gonna have to try to revive some strange person, I hope I don't get AIDS or herpes, like this is fucking happening. And then this big black lady turns her head and looks up at me, gives a huge big grin, and I'm like, are you okay? And she hits the gas like she just fucking robbed a bank, squealing tires, runs down the street. And I'm standing in the road totally confused, like, what the fuck just happened? Who just lays on their horn and doesn't even need anything? Like, they just did that because she was trying to have fun? Like, it's a Yuletide tradition for her? So fucking weird. So weird. Um, so how was your dinner? I have no idea on that one. That's just, I, trying to come up with like a funny story that could, you know, make it all make sense and nothing's coming to me. It was so obscure. So obscure. F- fuck. All right. Yeah, I mean, either way, it was it was a very interesting night. I had a lot of fun, and uh, I'm glad that you're properly lubricated for the show. <laughs> oh, big time. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, yeah. So, so the last time you and I talked... Oh, boy. We were going to do our top five and five. Oh, boy. Are you ready for this? Oh, boy. Did you do your homework? I did. I did. <gasps> you did? I did. Oh, I was expecting the worst with your oh, boys. All right, so do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Do you want to start with uh, one over the other? What do you want to do? I'll go first. Do you want to start male or female? Let's start because you're a female with male. Okay. Okay, so let me let me set this up for the listeners really quick. Last time Jesse was on the show, we briefly, brief, I'm sorry, briefly dusted over our top five H&H, which is a sort of fun game that I sort of play with people, top five heterosexual and homosexual people that no matter what, hands down, you would fuck regardless of your current relationship or state of health or whatever. Like, these are the top five people that at a drop of a hat, you would completely have sex with. And it would be okay whether they were straight or gay or whether you were straight or gay. It doesn't matter. They're just, they sort of transcend sexuality for you. So it's different for everyone and I'm very interested in yours. Well, 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 before I even name any, I need to re-explain the premise to the the audience here because for me this is not a matter of you know at a drop of a hat if these people were available i would have sex with them it's in the case of the women at least these are the women who i think i would be able to have sex with possibly for the most amount of seconds before throwing up all right well some people are into that (laughs) (laughs) don't want to cast judgment 
Actually, um, I'm not even sure I'd be into these guys so much. I don't know. It's 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 weird. You were ruining this game. I'm totally <laughs> ruining this ruining game. It. Totally. Um, okay, right, well, right. hold on. I, I'm curious. What um, what base are you going to be getting to uh, pre-vomitous with these ladies? <laughs> oh, no, no, we're not leaving home. <laughs> oh, what? What? All right, no, you're not going to end up in like a weird scissor fest and just, ah, I Hell can't go. No. <laughs> okay. All right, so so give us your uh, your ladies here. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. The give ladies? us your men. Your men. All right, the guys, the guys. All right, this is, this one's easier. All right, so we'll start with uh, number one, Johnny Depp, and thinking Gilbert Grape, Benny and June kind of oh, yeah. image. Yeah. Number so, two now is which. Are, are you well, giving okay. them, like, in order of importance or just random order? No, no, in order of importance. Oh, okay. So number two is Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne, first, uh, you know, Dark Knight Rises. I'm Batman. Exactly. <laughs> number three, Matthew McConaughey in Contact. Really? Yeah. He's, he's just a hip-happening hip priest. He's, yeah, he's he's totally kind of a, a you know hippie in the sense of not entirely clean looking, yeah. You know, unwell kempt, but whatever. He's reason, a man of the cloth without the cloth. Kind of did it for me. <laughs> and number nice. four, Michael Bane, Terminator Two. He was the good guy in that movie, if you don't remember it, but he was the one who grabbed Sarah Connor and come with me if you want to live, kind of. He was that I'm gonna guy. have to look him up. I don't remember what he looks like. I can't imagine him. He was also. You remember that? You remember uh, Tombstone? Yes. He was Johnny Ringo. He was the bad guy. In the oh movie. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's that cool. Guy. Not a bad yeah. looking guy. And last but not least, Jet Li in Fist of Fury. Really? Yeah. I've always had a thing for Asian guys. Don't tell Darren Diaside that. All right. Darren, she totally digs you. Don't tell Darren. <laughs> I I never would have. Okay, so what is it about the um, the martial artist? Because he, I mean, Jet Li is he's I, very much not. I would say he's more of a martial artist than he is an Asian dude, as far as the way he presents himself. Yeah, I mean, and this is this is kind. This isn't. Okay, so like I'm going to all geek out now on Jet Li for a moment here, but he had early films where he was like just coming out of his Olympic athlete phase and he had later films where he's, you know, he's pretty much just a Hollywood star using wires, if anything, and he's just another actor. And in between, there were movies where he was, you know, he's, he's, he was an older guy. He still had the skill of being an ex-Olympic athlete. But he was also using all of the tricks and tools of Hollywood. And this wow. particular movie I called out is in that kind of middle phase. And the reason I called this one out is because, well, while I admire the the strength and the skill and the musculature of his younger self, there's also the maturity I found sexy. But wow. when you get into the older films where the, the skill is gone... And the muscle tone is gone, and he's just another actor. Then he's just another actor, and it's not there anymore. All right. Wow. Well, uh, so how do you, how do you want to move from here? 
Do you want to uh, give us your gals, or do you want me to go with my guys? Uh, you go with your guys. Okay. Uh, so mine are not in any particular order, except probably this first one. No, that's not true. None of these are in straight order. And I, I must preface this by saying, I have never... Mm, that's not true. I can't say that. I don't see myself as particularly attractive to men in any way. Uh, but these guys, I think I could make exceptions for. So, number one, Viggo Mortensen. Mortensen. Um, I would say, uh, as in the prophecy playing Lucifer. This dude, he looks badass. He has got fucking chops for an actor. And he's, an, he's a well-rounded actor where he can play a lot of different roles. So, uh, The Road amazing uh he did one which the, the name of it escapes me but he was just a regular guy uh bent for vengeance in it, and it was really great and i think a lot of it has to do with i've been told in certain lighting that i look like this gentleman so i dig that and i'd fuck myself so <laughs> in fact every time i beat off I, I do fuck myself um so the second one uh we're crossing paths here hopefully i don't get the sloppy seconds but we're doing johnny depp uh, Hopefully I don't, I don't get the sloppy seconds because, you know, <laughs> ass to cunt is more dangerous than cunt to ass. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> no. I didn't Okay, you that. know what? That's a really good that. point. So I will. <laughs> you're no, no, no. Hold on. Wait a second. Because you're saying that he would be fucking me. And that's not. No, <laughs> I would be fucking him. <laughs> that's totally the case. Totally different. In in this in this Dream homosexual on, fantasy of mine, Dream I am on. not a bottom. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, maybe I would let him fuck me. Um, I'll let you go. For, I'm a gentleman. Ladies first. <laughs> I, and plus, I don't mind the vagine. I, I kind of really fucking love it. So I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, okay. So the next in line here is Un McGregor, and I'm not talking Star Wars. Un McGregor. Um, just the way he is as a regular person. He is a gorgeous man. Like, he is so goddamn attractive. It's insane. So, uh, I really like him. Uh, next is, and this is sort of like, you know, cliche, but Brad Pitt. Uh, I think he's a striking gentleman, and I truly, truly dig the way he looks. Like, in the, the new movie, Fury, the way he looks in there, I thought was badass. S Snatch, he was fucking awesome in Snatch. Um, so, sh stuff like that I really dig. Uh, and the last one on my mail list, again, we're crossing paths here. Ladies, you can have the first go. Uh, Christian Bale, uh, a la American Psycho. Uh, this guy is... Uh, <laughs> I have more in common with him than I should admit. <laughs> so I really, really dig uh, his portrayal of one of my favorite novels of all time. Um, yeah, so how about we go with your ladies? Okay. So number one... Karen Allen as Marion from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Awesome. <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> All right. Number two, getting a little weird here, Gemma Whelan as Asha Greyjoy in the Game of Thrones series. Whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Let me... So this is the girl that let her brother finger her. Yep. As she took... Okay. All right. Why her? Well, I think... As I was looking through the, the list, I think what it comes down to is if I had to do it with a lady, I wouldn't want her to be ugly, mm -hmm. but I am not attracted to femininity. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, she's got a little I'm edge to her. Joy. 
So number yeah. three, um, and I'm probably mispronouncing this woman's name, Numi Rapace as the girl with the dragon tattoo. There were there oh. were two versions of this movie. This is not the David Fincher one. This is the the translated. Oh Christ, was it Norwegian? Oh goddamn! I can't remember the uh-huh. country it was in. God damn it! This is my ugly American arrogance speaking through here. <laughs> but it was the one done originally, and and she's the same actress that was in uh, one of the Sherlock Holmes movies. I I can't remember that either. But that lady, the one that ended the third series with the big mohawk thing that lady okay uh number three would be michelle yo uh from crouching tiger hidden dragon now michelle yo was actually a bond girl i didn't like her as a bond girl i like her as a kung fu artist oh yeah and number five linda hamilton going back to terminator 2 i see and i always see her as children of the corn Never seen that movie, actually. Ah, what? Yeah, I know. It's like a classic. Everybody's seen it. I haven't seen it. No. Oh, well. Yeah, I, I think I saw her as Children of the Corn first, and that's why. It just sort of imprinted on my brain. But uh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, she is, she's a tough one in that show, so I, I get it. Karen Allen's definitely a tough girl. All right. All right I think we got your type. Mm. <laughs> okay, so mine is much more soft <laughs> compared to yours. I would assume so. <laughs> uh, again, no particular order. Um, but let me first start off, and this is going to be telling once you hear the list. I enjoy Curves. So, uh, Scarlett Johansson. Oh, Mamma Mia. My goodness. This woman's beautiful. Mila Kunis, which, <laughs> I mean, come on. She... Whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. You say you enjoy Curves. Mm hmm. Last time I saw Mila Kunis, if I'm saying her name right, was in that uh, ballerina movie, Black Swan. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. When, in which she and um, the other lady there, whose name escapes me, they both weighed about 80 pounds. So, yeah, I mean, they were ballerinas. Um, so, I guess, uh, by way of explanation, um, not all curves are created equal, but all of them have a feminine form versus a sort of um, nondescript or male form. Okay, okay. So when you say you like curves, it's not a matter of size, it's a matter of shape. Absolutely, 100%. All right, got it. Um, And then this last, this this third one is going to break that rule. Christina Hendricks from Mad Men, uh, the the redhead, super busty, super classical um, uh, sort of... uh, you know, the bombshell figure. Um, but she's smart as her character and she's sexy. And I love that about women. Uh, Angelina Jolie, which is a bit of a break from my normal because she has very, uh, masculine shoulders, but her portrayal, uh, in some of her, the films, I have to forgive you know, a couple of her, uh, in my opinion, flaws, and really just uh, she she made it to my top with Maleficent, to be quite honest. Um, and then, of course, the uh, chameleon of actresses, Kate Blanchett. She's fucking amazing, and I would leave my wife today for her. <laughs> <laughs> today, right now. Oh yeah, no, she's absolutely amazing in literally everything she's ever done. But my favorite is as Elizabeth in the two released Elizabeth movies. Um, which, by the way, if 
any of you listening have not seen Elizabeth or Elizabeth the Golden Age years, uh, you're totally missing out on some amazing filmmaking. Uh, really, really great shows. All right, and that's it. That's five and five. Do you uh, do you feel better? Was this easy for you? It was weird. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm kind of blown by Kate Blanchett. Really? Yeah. I, well, I haven't seen either of the Elizabeth movies. <gasps> oh. So, well, I mean, she's not the most attractive in those, but her performance is stunning. I know her from Bandits and Lord of the Rings. Oh, okay. And, you know, she wasn't bad looking in either, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she she's definitely not, um, well, okay, that's not true. If you see her just as an actress sort of dolled up for a red carpet, she's stunning. As a regular woman, um, she's not you know, like drop dead gorgeous, but her, her ability, her talent is what pushes her over the edge for me. She's so goddamn good in everything she does. I mean, she's just, it's, it's method for me. So, you know, for example, Viggo Morganson, I think is on par because he has the ability to really encapsulate a role. And that means a lot to me when it comes to uh, attractiveness. And, And this was, you know, I didn't spend a whole lot of time on this, and this is fluctuating for any of these lists. But, um, yeah. Good oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, I, I get that, because you know the actor Willem Dafoe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very nearly made my list. It's just, he's not actually physically attractive, but he's so versatile an actor, I think. Yeah. That And, and he's played some sexy roles. That it's just he 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 was he was a drop off the list. He was there yeah. and he was not, and then he was there and he was not. You know. Oh, I totally totally dig it. Yeah, I I love him as an actor. He's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. So this is just supposed to be fun here, people. If you want to send us your top five H and H, or as I usually call it, my top fives, um, or top five and five, send it to us. Let us know, and we will. Uh, well judge you i guess <laughs> based on the list please include the subject line adam is gay so we <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that'll work out great well how about we uh, do a little non-food food craft sounds good all right jesse what do you want well, first, Jesse, I'd, I'd, I'd like you to dress me as master. I, I am your master, after all. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yes, master. That's better. Now, look, I've got guests coming over tonight, and I want you to entertain them. What, do I look like a belly dancer? Oh, I, I assume that was part... I mean, the outfit, it, it kind of suggests... You may be used to dance. Listen, the gin put me in the bottle. He forgot to add the preservatives. Now, the outfit may be wrinkle-free, but what in it ain't. You don't like it? Call the number on the bottle and complain. Hi, welcome to I Dream of Jesse. Can I get you something to drink? We've got beer and wine, and there's a punch bowl on the table. Careful, it's got quite a kick to it. Or we've got some just plain unsweetened iced tea if you prefer. Uh, please feel free to help yourself to some hors d'oeuvres. We've got Swedish meatballs, uh, buffalo bites, there's some cheese and crackers, or if you prefer, there's a, a fruit and veggie platter over there. Oh, and I baked all these cookies myself. Enjoy. Enjoy.
Playing hostess isn't just about making the people you like to be around want to be around you. It's also a great opportunity to read and manipulate people and to send out subtle messages about yourself. So put away the bell, book, and candle and get out the baby carrots, Doritos, and Tootsie Rolls and get ready for some lesser magic. Let's start with reading people. And for that, you're going to want to put out some sweets. If you're in your home, the sweets can be anything. In a business setting, small, individually wrapped sweets work best, like Tootsie Rolls or Kisses. You want to pay attention to who eats the sweets. There will be two types who come by and help themselves, agreeable people seeking small indulgences, and stressed out people needing comfort. Focus on the former and smile politely, but otherwise ignore the latter. Stressed out people aren't generally going to be much use to you, but agreeable people will be happy to help. When an agreeable person goes for the goodies, just smile and make them feel welcome. Have one with them. Make them feel very comfortable coming back for more. Each time they come back, warm up to them a little bit more. Make small talk until you know enough to engage in real conversation and develop a relationship. Agreeable people aren't necessarily outgoing, but they enjoy helping people, and so it's good to have these people in your life. Pay attention also to those who don't eat the candy. If you're at home, put out cheese and crackers. You're doing this to determine if they want to snack but don't like sweets, or if they're just not the snacking sort. It's tougher to do in a business setting because there aren't so many individually wrapped, salty, savory snacks out there, and some people get a little squeamish about reaching into a bowl to grab some pretzels when other people may have put their hands on the food. One way around this might be to microwave a bag of popcorn and, even before opening it, offer it to the other person, shaking it some straight out of the bag onto a napkin for them. Now, the people who take the salty, savory snacks, but not the sweets, tend to be less agreeable than those with a sweet tooth. They are also less conscientious. If you're looking to do something naughty, these are your co-conspirators. Just again, be sure you're not dealing with someone compulsively eating in response to stress. At this point, you may be thinking, um, Jesse, they may just be hungry. Yes, of course they're hungry. If people are full from lunch, you're going to have a much harder time determining if they are agreeable sweet tooths, compulsive stress eaters, or indulgent snackers. You want to do this when people are hungry so you can also differentiate a fourth group, the very conscientious. There are some people who can be hungry and don't mind being hungry. They figure dinner's only an hour away and they're more interested in the wholesome foods that will cover their dinner plate than the snacks you put out before them. The only appetizers that might tempt these people are vegetables or maybe fruits. They will otherwise have a bite or two to be polite and then will stop. Conscientious people can be counted on. They aren't as ready and willing as the agreeable types, but if you can engage them, they'll come through in the end. Now, if you find someone who's both conscientious and agreeable, make this person your best friend. Food-wise, they'll be going for sweets, but sparingly. Conscientious people tend to be on the slim side. There's one more personality trait that can be picked out with strategic starters, and that's openness to new experiences. These are people who will try an hors d'oeuvre, whether they're hungry or not, just because it's something they've never eaten before. If you're wondering whether to out yourself as a Satanist to a close friend, or looking for an adventurous sex partner, being able to spot those novelty seekers can be handy. Now, with a few pointers about using food to read individuals under our belt, let's talk about using food to manipulate all types of people. Hungry, horny people tend to go for heavier partners. Once they've eaten, their preferences run to slimmer partners. So if your evening plans include dinner and sex, be sure to get them in the right order. Or if you want to ask your opposite sex boss for a raise, schedule that meeting according to your physique. 
People are generally more agreeable after they've eaten, thus the benefit of lunch meetings. People are, of course, more agreeable with a bit of alcohol in their bloodstream, hence the benefits of the martini lunch meeting. I don't want to get into booze too heavily here, but I will point out the hors d'oeuvre examination can be done just as easily with a cocktail party. Agreeable people will indulge in sweet drinks, less agreeable people will go for bitters, conscientious people will drink less, and novelty seekers will want to sample whatever it is you've just concocted. For that matter, introverts and extroverts will tend to swap places if they've had enough. And of course, you will always be more attractive to the opposite sex if they've had a few. Speaking of being attractive and getting back to food, you can make yourself more attractive by eating certain foods. They tint your skin. It's one of these super subtle changes, like a woman's face shape during ovulation, where you can't tell what's different, but you just know the person is more attractive. Egg yolks, tomatoes, cucumbers, carrots, green and especially red bell peppers, apricots, broccoli, sweet potatoes, and celery are among these foods. As there are numerous other benefits to eating these foods, I'd call their inclusion in your daily diet a no-brainer. Speaking of diets, never be on one, even if you are. By that I mean don't talk about being on a diet. People trying to lose weight, first off, lacked discipline to remain at a desired weight to begin with. And secondly, they haven't yet succeeded in reaching their desired weight. And third, probably, statistically speaking, they won't keep the weight off once they lose it. So if you tell people you're trying to lose weight, you look undisciplined, unsuccessful, and likely to be a continued failure. Diet if you want a diet, but don't tell people you're on a diet. Now, food is very political, and people will judge you by what you eat and how much you consume. If you eat with people, it's very much like talking with people, where you adopt their mannerisms, tone, and speed of speech to get their ear. When dining out, eat something similar to what they eat pace yourself to match them. It can make people uncomfortable to be either the first person to finish their meal or the last. It's easy enough to slow your eating if need be, but if you can't keep up with the other person, start telling them before they finish their meal how full you are. Have a couple more bites after they've finished, then set down the silverware, put the napkin on the table, and insist that it was a great meal but you snacked earlier and you're stuffed. The message is the same either way. I'm like you. I like the same food you like, and I spend the same amount of time eating. If you don't have the opportunity to see what the other person likes before placing your order in a restaurant, or if it's a brown bag lunch and you turn out to be the only one with ham on rye at a table full of Muslims, or vegans, or Muslim vegans, start talking values. So for instance, if I was trying to win over and influence my lunchmate, and I whipped out ham on rye and discovered my lunchmate was a Muslim vegan, I might say something like, you know, I've often wondered if trichinosis wasn't part of the reason some religions ban pork. It makes sense, you know, to protect the faithful from diseases they might not understand. Now, of course, you can avoid trichinosis by thoroughly cooking meat, but there are other concerns, all these antibiotics they pump into animals these days. I can see where you would want to avoid eating animal products entirely. I'm, I'm sure it's safer. You know, I've been meaning to cut back myself, eat more raw, organic vegetables, more beans and grains. You know what I mean? The point is to make the person think you are like them, and if you don't look like them and you don't eat like them, you damn well better appear to think like them. Now if you're eating and not eating with someone, don't be seen. Generally speaking, you're not looking your best stuffing your face. Granted, watching fat chicks eat is a kink, but it's not a common kink. For the most part, if the other person isn't eating, don't you be eating in front of them. One notable exception, if you're a hot chick looking to attract a man, you can be seen eating a banana. 
But if every day you sit down at the park and eat a banana, it's going to be pretty obvious. And you lose the law of the forbidden if you're obviously doing it for a show. A more subtle variation is to take regular breaks and have a yogurt. Bring a magazine with you. There's nothing cliche about a woman reading and eating yogurt, but you do have the opportunity to get lost in what you're reading while absentmindedly licking your spoon. Of course, all of this can be turned around, like all the tips in the satanic wish. Just being aware of them will clue you into when they're being used on you. And, because these are just part of human nature and humans naturally recognize patterns, people not cognizant of why get these impressions too. Going back to that bowl of Tootsie Rolls or the cheese and crackers, other people do clue into these things. They may not study it the way a witch or a warlock would. They may not be consciously aware of it, but people generally pick up on patterns. I don't need to tell you someone who can't walk past free food is going to tend towards impulsiveness over discipline. Your life experience tells you that. Life experience tells everyone that. So by changing the way you react to a bowl of Tootsie Rolls, or a strange-looking libation your host just admitted, or a choice of cheese and crackers, or vegetables and dip, this is all sending out messages about you. A setting of drinks and hors d'oeuvres is a great place to not only read and manipulate people, but to allow yourself, true or fake, to be read as well. Well, Jesse, another amazing segment. Uh, let me ask, where can the good folks at home find you online? Well, I am tweeting at, at them. <laughs> yeah, I can even talk today because <laughs> company came over and I had so much to drink. Um, I'm tweeting at at damned lucky. I'm blogging at drafts from a satanic windbag at wordpress.com dot wordpress.com. And now, ladies and gentlemen, finally, I'm on Facebook. As- what? Yeah. You've officially sold your soul. Social media trendsetter that I am, I'm now on Facebook <laughs> as Jesse Twain. Friend All me right. if you like. I will friend you back. <laughs> <laughs> You're not actually friends when you friend people. Just saying. <laughs> it's sort of a fake friend thing. And there's and there's still idojesse at gmail.com. Cool. Well, I encourage everyone to check her out on uh, definitely her blog. And uh, if you are in social networking circles, follow her there, her there as well. Um, really great stuff. Thank you, Jesse. Sure. Let's... Let's do a little Infernal Informant. All right. Here we go. Hey, what's going on fast? Uh, Infernal Informant. You know the truck. You out there. Okay, so this first article is from the Christian Science Monitor.com. Why impact of Eric Garner case might be much bigger than Ferguson. So, uh, you all remember, I, I spoke about Ferguson last week. Uh, this was specifically about the death of Michael Brown at the hands of um, an officer. And so, a uh, grand jury declined to indict the officer for murdering the unarmed man. And a lot of people around the country, actually, around the United States, uh, held protests. And uh, even the NFL got in on it uh, a little bit. And um, there was much ado about the situation. Uh, but that's not the only time this type of behavior happens. So, in Staten Island, a grand jury decided not to indict a New York Police Department officer who killed a gentleman named Eric Garner. Um, and the entire situation was caught on camera 
Eric Garner was selling, uh, illegally selling uh, individual cigarettes and uh, just moments before broke up a fight and the police officers came, stepped to him and ultimately killed him. Uh, now, Eric Garner had asthma and when he was taken down, uh, one of the officers was choking him and he was telling them that he, he couldn't breathe, he couldn't breathe and uh, they didn't do anything about it and he died actually in the hospital after having been transported. Uh, grand jury literally had the ability to watch the entire video and failed to indict the police officer for having killed him. Now, the police officer has, uh, you know, put out um, words of uh, uh, condolence, uh, sorrow, uh, regret, remorse, and... Um, but it, what it's done is opened up a conversation where you have uh, people uh, in politics, for example, uh, President Obama saying that they want to dump a whole bunch of money into cameras for the officers with the idea that if you're being videotaped all the time, you're less likely to do this. But in this particular case, they were being videotaped. They knew they were being videotaped and they still killed this man. Now, it was, in my opinion... Obviously, they did not intend to kill him. It was an unintended consequence, but nonetheless, a man is dead. And um, I don't, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that cameras are going to change that. So there's this huge conversation uh, being had in our country about police brutality, police uh, elitism, police militarism. <laughs> That's not even a fucking word. Um, they're, uh, they're very uh, military-like appearance, approach, uh, and behavior to the citizens of our country, uh, regionally dependent. Um, and uh, they're sort of the above-the-law attitude. Uh, so, Jesse, what do you think about this? I think that it is a great idea to bring this up in the month of December because this is totally in line with Elf on a Shelf. You've what heard of fuck? that, I, I assume. I've heard of Elf on a Shelf. I don't know anything about it. I don't know how this relates. Okay. Well, I don't know what Elf on a Shelf is. I've never, like, actually seen one. <laughs> but I get how it works. So how it works is you as a parent with a young child, you get this elf, you put it on a shelf, hence Elf on a Shelf, <laughs> and your kid thinks the elf is watching it the whole time watching him or her so they behave better and they go to sleep at night and you creep into the room and you move the elf to another shelf and they wake up and oh the elf has moved so therefore it must be alive and it must still be watching me now crazy as and dumb as this might seem there have been other experiments done um where if you put a mirror next to like a bowl of candy and tell people help yourself to one if they see the mirror, they'll have one. If there's no mirror, they'll have five or six. Or if you put something that looks like a pair of eyes, people will just behave better if they get some kind of subconscious sense that they're being watched. So if the police were to put up cameras everywhere, working or not, if they just gave people the sense that they're being watched, people would behave better. This has been proved. It would be the same thing if they're cops, it would be the same thing if they're not cops. So there is an, a credible idea to, you know, more cameras equals better behavior, not just for cops, but for everyone. 
there's also the case to be made against, you know, I don't want to live in a surveillance state. And I'm not trying to argue against that because that's totally a legitimate idea as well. It's just, it, it, to me, this take all this stupid freaking politics about Eric Garner, about Ferguson, yeah, throw all that shit out. I don't give a shit about that. What I actually care about is the science behind if you think you're being watched, you will act better, and the politics behind living in a surveillance state. And to me, it's it comes down to those two things. And I'm not sure where I stand because I see the benefit of both. But see, it's I, really fucking interesting. Yeah. I, I fail to see the the results of the experiment that you um, are talking about behaving better because you think you're being watched. On a micro level, obviously it's proven that it works statistically. <clears throat> On a macro level, I don't think it works at all. Um, and, and here's why. Because cops have had photos on their cars for a long time. And I think it's it's interesting that you you initially brought up that if there were cameras, people would act better. But in this story, it's the cops that were acting worse. <laughs> like, because you illegally sell cigarettes, do you deserve death is the question. So it's interesting that you went to the people first and then you said, well, the cops also. But the cops have been filmed for years and years through their um, patrol cars and they still do insane shit and the fact that nowadays we all have mobile cameras on our phone taking video at all times uploading immense amounts of it um, bad behavior and uh, outrageous behavior and nothing changes and we're still doing the same things on a ma macro level I don't I don't think that changes behavior at all in fact, for some people, it encourages worse behavior. And when it comes to something like illegally selling cigarettes uh, individually rather than, you know, as a pack with taxes, for example, uh, I, it's such a petty thing. I, I don't know why that would require multiple officers taking down anyone, like in any situation. It, it's absurd to me. Well, clearly Just, you don't work for Philip Morris. <laughs> True. <laughs> very, very true. Um, but to, to the point about the cameras, uh, I definitely would prefer not to live in a police state. Uh, well, I'm sorry, not a police state, but um, constantly being watched. Because, not because I, I do like weird, crazy things, but or I want to get away with something, but just because I enjoy privacy as an individual. I like the idea of privacy. Um, but I don't think the solution is to throw cameras on cops because it's proven that it's not changing their behavior because they have been known to be filmed and still do unbelievable things that are against the law like all the time whether it's literally driving into a uh, 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 um, uh, a playground and within five seconds shooting and killing a young kid for uh, having a airsoft shotgun uh, no conversations or anything, just driving in, jumping out, killing him. Or if it's on the street, pulling over a, a middle-aged woman who's giving you shit and you literally take her down and start kneeing her in the head with your camera in your cop car watching you the whole time. Or, or just taking down a homeless person on the freeway uh, while people are stopped next to you with their flip cameras out recording the whole thing, shouting, why are you hitting this person and just murdering people in the street? Cops are doing this stuff and th these videos are literally available for anyone to see at any time and many of them are quite recent. So 
it doesn't change their behavior. Cops do feel like they're above the law. And my personal experience and my family's personal experience with officers is never been a good thing. And I remember distinctly an experience I had with an officer where uh, we were going to film a marathon for a city project that I'm working on. And the officer was so fucking awesome and so nice and friendly, it, it blew me away. I could not believe he was an officer of law because he was so cool. That was what blew me away, not the assholes. Like, it shouldn't be the exception to be nice to people if you're a servant of the people. It should be the rule. And the exception should be the people freaking the fuck out and acting like they're above the law. But if you've ever been pulled over... I would say you've probably had a negative experience. The, and this, you don't have to be a dick. You just this, don't have to. This has to be a population thing. This has to be this has to come down to if you live in a populous area, your experience with cops is gonna be negative. If you don't, it's gonna be positive. Because most of the people I know who live in rather rural areas experience with cops is positive like yeah. it, it's it's a rare exception but i know a lot of people who have negative experiences with cops and they all live in populated areas choosing the best christmas tree is dead or alive the best and this is actually on uh, al.com like an alabama website uh it's by bill finch and the the premise of this is this dude uh, having a conversation about what's better, having a live Christmas tree or a dead Christmas tree, if you're going to erect a Christmas tree for the holiday season. I didn't even know that there was like a live Christmas tree movement. Had you ever heard of this? I didn't know there was a movement. I mean, I know there's people who have them and prefer them and people who have the artificial and prefer those. I mean, okay, so that's how I thought it was too. But the way he's describing this in this article, the live versus dead is live means you bring the roots home with the tree. What? The dead is you just cut the stem off. What? And you replant the tree after you've had it as the Christmas tree so that you're not actually harming the tree. And as he puts it in here, the, it's a slow, painful death for the Christmas tree. <laughs> oh, sweet baby. So this is a fucking movement. Like... <laughs> Okay, 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 okay. This has got to be regional, okay? This would oh, not yeah, I'm sure. happen in New England. <laughs> You're fucking crazy. Okay, you, you can grow a Christmas tree in New England by accident by not weeding. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this would not happen in my area. It's uh, so weird. Okay, so given the option here, not between a fake or real, but between a real slash dead tree versus a real slash live tree what would you prefer and do you see a benefit to either like i said it it comes down to i can grow a christmas tree by just <laughs> not weeding um it, they grow okay okay we've got personal note here we've got eight christmas trees Growing on our property right now. Well, they, yeah, show we, off. We, we, <laughs> we, <laughs> Look at Jesse with her eight Christmas trees. Because race. I'm so arrogant. <laughs> we bought the property four or five years ago, and it had these eight trees growing on it. They, the previous owners, they started their own Christmas tree farm. 
So it's they're selling, going selling there. Point. I can see that. Now, <laughs> I mean, I could buy another and put it beside them, but I could also just like, I, I think they get pine cones and that's how they reproduce. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but I could just <laughs> keep regrowing them. Well, Jesse, a mommy Christmas tree and a papa Christmas tree who really, really love each other. I like your fur. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I just, to me, it's like, okay, that's like saying, okay, do you, do you want to grow grass by just sprinkling it on, or do you want to actually have the roots and have a? I, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's no, it's you could be talking about dandelions. Would you rather I just put dandelion flowerets on your lawn, or would you rather I put them in by the root? They're gonna grow anyway. <laughs> it's really weird. This is this is this sort of naturalist movement gone too far in my opinion yeah i mean if they if they're natural to your area it doesn't make sense if they're not natural to your area then there's a reason they're not natural to your area they're not going to be healthy there yeah i mean that's that's one of the sort of if you look at the origin of christmas trees as as far as like uh spruce trees go it's one of the reasons why uh modern day people believe that the Christmas tree had such uh, a, a powerful symbol is because it was green all year round and it could grow in any climate. Be, they're sort of just this hardy version of a fucking tree that's always green. And so that was unusual. And so they applied meaning and, and authority to it in some way, uh, culturally dependent. Um, and so it, it, I just, I never, like, in my wildest dreams imagined that someone would be like, well, honey... If we just cut the tree down, we're going to kill the tree. Well, no fucking... Uh, yes! Y- don't people understand that, that things die? <laughs> we grow them specifically to kill them and put lights on them? Like, they wouldn't exist otherwise? <laughs> it, you know, in, in these lots? So it's not like we're... It's just a natural environment. And there's these few sparse trees that we're hunting down, ready to kill. <laughs> you know? It's How fucking do these lots people feel when they buy anything made of wood or paper? Yeah, or cut their lawn. You're literally cutting your grass's life in half. <laughs> like, you're cutting them in half. Each little blade of grass, you monster. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because actually, I mean, we we talk about all this, and I and I talk about how you know Christmas trees just spring up like weeds around here. I know of a lot of houses around here where they don't have a Christmas tree inside. They have them outside and they put the lights on, you know, in a, an extension cord out from the house and they put up the oh. lights outside because yeah. that's where they grow. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. If you really respect it, stop bringing them inside. This segment of the Nine Cents Podcast is The Satanic Tradition. I'm your host, the Reverend Robert Merciless of the Church of Satan. In this part of the podcast, we examine the history of Satanism. It's a history of art, magic, politics, superstition, fear, rebellion, and liberation. All elements of what I call the Satanic Tradition. 
John Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost, published in 1667, was, in my opinion, the beginning of the use of Satan as a literary symbol for freedom and revolt in both literature and politics. To understand the importance of Paradise Lost, it's important to understand the intellectual climate of Europe in the Middle Ages. Christianity had an absolute chokehold on Western thought for more than a thousand years. It became the official religion of the Roman Empire in 380 AD. Christian mobs then began systematically destroying pagan religion, learning, literature, and life. Thus began the Dark Ages. By about 1000 AD, Iceland became the last European country to be forcibly converted to Christianity, making Christianity dominant throughout the West almost completely. Throughout all of Europe, medieval lords held unchallenged power over their serfs and vassals, and that domination was reinforced by the church. To question the prince's right to rule was the same as committing a sin against God. To question the orthodox theology of God or his pope was to bring down the power of the prince upon your head. Despite the split in the church between East and West starting in about 1054, the entire population of Europe was systematically convinced that Jehovah was all-knowing and all-powerful, that the pope in Rome was his personal representative and leader on earth, and that the established feudal political system controlled by hereditary royalty and nobles was a system established by Jehovah and supported by the Pope, and thus, no matter how corrupt or unjust, it was utterly beyond any question by any human. This remained the absolutely dominant idea in politics and religion until the early 1500s, when two high-profile rebellions against the authority of the Pope showed that the claims were lies. In 1517, the German theologian Martin Luther openly and publicly questioned and then helped lead a successful rebellion against the corruption of the Pope, leading to the creation of Protestantism and breaking the Roman Catholic Church's monopoly over the religion of Europe. Luther defied the Pope openly, yet he was not struck down by lightning from heaven. This undoubtedly gave ideas of rebellion to others. A few years later, in 1531, King Henry VIII broke free from the Catholic Pope, so he could also be free of the Pope's prohibition against divorce, and thus be free to marry the little hottie he'd been banging for years. Everyone knew. Here was a king daring to snub the church, and to do so in order to gain sexual freedom. Despite this scandalous rebellion, Henry was not struck down by lightning from heaven either. Thus, the lie was laid bare. Clearly, the claim of Jehovah's omnipotence and his unchallenged establishment of the existing political order was false. From this point onward, one can see in history the downward death spiral of Christian political and moral domination and the ascendancy of rebels eager to 
to throw off the chains of religion and secure increasing degrees of personal freedom and liberty. For the next hundred years, Europe was engulfed in wars as vassal lords took up arms to free themselves from domination by either the Pope or one of his kings. And increasingly from this point forward, the heroic symbol for such rebellion and liberation was the Judeo-Christian mythological character of Satan, the opponent and antagonist of Jehovah, depicted in his own holy scriptures and underscored as the ultimate moral boogeyman through centuries of Christian folklore. The beginning of the tradition of symbolic literary and philosophical depiction of Satan as a positive, admirable, and even exemplary hero can be traced back nearly five centuries to the epic poem Paradise Lost, published by John Milton in 1667. Paradise Lost is a pivotal piece of literature in the history of Satanism because it is the first widely read major work to depict the character of Satan in anything like a positive, admirable, heroic light. Before this point, Satan was virtually always shown as the unadulterated evil bad guy. There is one notable exception to this generalization. It's a segment from a French fable from the 13th century that's so delightful that it merits a short digression to talk about. The prose and poetry story was titled Aucassin and Nicolette. It's the tale of two star-crossed lovers kept apart by their noble families and swept up in the tumult of the Crusades. But it is mostly humorous and definitely antinomian because in numerous ways the story turns social and moral conventions on their head. One of the most satanic parts of this story from the early 1400s is the one in which our hero, Aucassin, says that he would rather go to hell than to heaven because the residents of hell are so much more interesting. What have I to do with paradise? I don't wish to enter, for only those people I will tell you of go to paradise. There go the aged priests and the old cripples and the maimed who kneel all day and night in front of those altars and in those ancient crypts beneath the churches. Those in their old worn cloaks and their old tattered clothes, whoever are naked and barefoot and pocked with sores, whoever are dying of hunger and thirst and cold and misery, they go to paradise. With them I have nothing to do, but to hell I will go. For to hell go the fine scholars, and the handsome knights who are slain in the jousts or in some grand war, and the brave soldiers and their noble gentlemen. With them I would go. There also go the lovely and gracious ladies, who have two or three lovers as well as their lords. And there go the gold and the silver and ermine and richest furs. There go the harpers and minstrels and kings of the earth. I will go with them. This was 300 years before Paradise Lost. But Paradise Lost from 1667 tells the story of the war in heaven. The rebellion by Satan and his band of rebel angels seeking to free themselves from the domination by Jehovah, the all-powerful tyrant of heaven. 
The rebels lose the war and are cast into hell where they rally themselves and vow to continue the fight. As a counter-strike, Satan attacks Jehovah by covertly undermining his creation of earth and man. Satan goes to earth, finds Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, successfully tempts them to defy Jehovah by eating of the tree of knowledge. For the two parents of humanity and all of their offspring, their unity with God and their Garden of Eden paradise is lost, as Satan gains a foothold and opens up earth as an ongoing second battlefield on which to continue his fight against Jehovah. Now, in Paradise Lost, Satan is still the bad guy of the story, but he is consistently portrayed as noble, rational, and thus admirable. His cause is doomed and lost, but it is just. For the first time in history, Satan is held up as kind of an anti-hero you could respect. In this poem, there was clearly some sympathy for the devil. This was radical. What is particularly fascinating and revealing is the story behind the story. The background of John Milton that led up to his publication reveals several layers of hidden motives behind the work. What you find is that Milton published the poem as a brilliant scheme to both save his own neck from execution by the king and to secretly and covertly continue Milton's long fight against kings and the Catholic Church. Like the character of Satan in Paradise Lost, John Milton was a rebel against a kingly tyrant claiming the mandate of heaven. He was on the side of the Republicans in the English Civil War who successfully deposed King Charles I and decapitated him in 1649. Sadly for the rebels, their victory only lasted about a decade. Their leader, Oliver Cromwell, died in 1659, and by the next year the monarchy was restored and King Charles II took the throne. This, of course, was very bad news for anyone who had supported the Republican cause, rebel heads rolled. In 1663, Milton was arrested for his past support of the rebellion. He avoided the death penalty and was even set free. It was a close call. So it's interesting to view Paradise Lost in view of Milton's situation and motivations at the time. He was broke and blind and had a young wife, so he needed money. He also needed to stay out of jail and avoid the executioner. But also he could not wholly abandon the good old cause of the rebellion against king and Catholics. So the epic poem he wrote carefully accomplished all of his goals. On its face the poem is a story of a rebellion crushed by an unstoppable heavenly royal power. If ever questioned by the authorities, Milton could point out that the story underscored royal power explicitly. But the manner in which the story was told, and the subtle treatment of the characters of Satan and his band of rebel angels, is so positive that a careful, sophisticated reader can easily read between the lines to detect the hidden theme of support for the rebels.
Anyone interested in gaining the full enjoyment of Paradise Lost really should look at two books. The first is the version of the epic poem published in 1974 as Asimov's annotated Paradise Lost, an original interpretation of Milton's epic poem. It includes the full text of the poem by John Milton, plus extensive notes by renowned science fiction writer Isaac Asimov. Today the book's very rare and very expensive. It's huge, 737 pages, but it is a treasure worth every penny you pay for it. You can read The Majesty of Milton's original poem and, on the very same page, the extensive explanation by Isaac Asimov of all of Milton's detailed references to Christian theology, Bible lore, and obscure expert references to classic Greek and Roman mythology. The poem can be hard to read and enjoy without that sort of explanation, but with Asimov's help, the reader gets a near-perfect understanding and enjoyment of the entire poem. Now, if you can't get a copy of Asimov's Paradise Lost, uh, annotated Paradise Lost, you can find a really good copy of the poem with notes in a great study guide that's online at paradiselost.org. The second book that's important for a full appreciation of Paradise Lost is one of literary criticism about the poem. The book is titled The Satanic Epic by Neil Forsyth, published in 2003. This book brilliantly makes the case that Paradise Lost is indeed a satanic epic in that it was clearly Milton's intent to present Satan, the rebel angel, as the barely secret hero of the story. This is important because for centuries Christian scholars have pointed to Milton's good Protestant Christian piety and theology to claim that Satan is and is meant to be seen as the bad guy of the story. Forsyth in his book shows that no, it really is a satanic epic. Now Milton was followed in years that came after by others in the positive use of Satan as a symbol for rebellion against the life strictures of Christian orthodoxy. The Hellfire Clubs used that term as a symbol for their libertine partying in the early 1700s. William Blake's ambiguous Satan character in the late 1700s was at least sometimes good. 19th century positive depictions of Satan in literature included the poetry you're familiar with of Charles Baudelaire or Giosui Carducci. Uh, the social and political works by Pierre Proudhon or Mikhail Bakunin, Stanislaus Przybyszewski. But all these were preceded by and owe a debt of inspiration to John Milton's Paradise Lost. Now, to gain a, a full appreciation of this historically pivotal epic poem, it's especially satisfying, I think, to read three of the parts of the Paradise Lost poem that I think are particularly satanic. The first segment occurs in the poem at the point that Satan and his defeated army pick themselves up from the dust after their fall down to hell. And Satan looks around and decides to embrace this new base of operations in which he finds himself. 
Is this the region, this the soil, the clime, said the lost archangel? This the seat that we must change for heaven? This mournful gloom for that celestial light? Be it so, since he who now is sovereign can dispose and bid what shall be right, farthest from him is best whom reason hath equaled, force hath made supreme above his equals. Farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. Hail, horrors, hail, infernal world, and thou profoundest hell. Receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. What matter where, if I be still the same, and what I should be, all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater. Here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here, for his envy will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice, To reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Next, Satan convenes a war council of his top lieutenants, and they each get an introduction as they march into the council meeting. In this section of the poem, Milton introduces Belial. Belial came last. Then whom a spirit more lewd fell not from heaven, or more gross to love vice for itself. To him no temple stood or altar smoked, yet who more oft than he, in temples and at altars, when the priest turns atheist, as did Eli's sons, who filled with lust and violence the house of God. In courts and palaces he also reigns, and in luxurious cities, where the noise of riot ascends above their loftiest towers, and injury and outrage. And when night darkens the streets, then wander forth the sons of Belial, flown with insolence and wine. Finally, there's a great segment at the end of the war council when Satan, having heard from his minions, announces his decision and fires up the troops with some satanic inspiration. Full council must mature. Peace is despaired. For who can think submission? War, then. War, open or understood, must be resolved. He spake and to confirm his words, out flew millions of flaming swords drawn from the thighs of mighty cherubim. The sudden blaze far round illumined hell. Highly they raged against the highest, and fierce with graft arms clashed on their sounding shields the din of war, hurling defiance toward the vault of heaven. Yes, yes, my dear friends, 
It was with glorious words like that that John Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost, launched the entire history of positive, heroic depictions of Satan, thus creating the genre of literary Satanism, and thereby initiating the literary symbolic portion of the Satanic tradition. And that is going to do it for another show, folks. We hope you enjoyed it, and we'd love to hear from you. Visit the website, 9centspodcast.com, and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let us know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the Satanet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 Cents and get updated on weekly topics. Download the show Mondays via the RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last FM, Stitcher, and YouTube, so look for us there. You can subscribe to 9 Cents via iTunes by searching 9 Cents, and if you do, don't forget to leave us a rating and a comment. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And remember that the only way we're going to keep doing this thing is if you continue to correspond and share it. 9 Cents is what it is because of you. Let's keep going. Help spread the word. Once again, thank you for joining me. And as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, being joined by... Jesse. The very inebriated and lovely as ever, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> and until next week, hail Satan! Hail Satan! <laughs>